Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is the fourth day of the month of March, and it is the year 2020. We're going to be continuing our conversation. That is, I'm going to be all the talk, doing all the talking, actually, but we're going to continue with the lecture on sphingolipids and inflammation, something I hope that you've been following along with. This will be the fourth component of that uh, series of events on uh, the Authentic Biochemistry feed. I've also been talking about the coronavirus and auto-inflammatory diseases, which are all linked together because the mechanisms that occur within the cells, tissues, and within the entire homeostatic system that is the human body are all relevant to understand how pathobiochemistry functions and pathophysiology turns into disease. So I'm not going to um, go back and discuss all those or summarize those now. I'm just going to go right into what we want to talk about today. So remember that sphingosine 1-phosphate works through G-protein-coupled receptors. And in so doing, it regulates oxidative and nitrosative stress and therefore death and survival of cells. So the sphingosine 1-phosphate receptor 2, which we talked about, is the delineation last time, inhibits the enzyme AKT, while receptor 3 activates it. So now, the reason I'm giving you this detail, this granularity, this molecularity, is so that you understand that simply talking about even a um, metabolite like sphingosine 1-phosphate, and we say, well, it functions to induce autophagy or inhibit apoptosis, for example, a generic general propos uh, uh, proposition like that, um, that's not necessarily the case. It depends on where sphingosine 1-phosphate will bind. It will bind to either receptor 2 or receptor 3, and depending on that, uh, it makes a big difference in how it is um, how it is translated into a mechanism. So that's why I'm telling you that. Now, inducible nitric oxide synthase is also involved, and it's typically induced by the transcription factor NF-kappa-B. But it can also undergo a sphingosine-1-phosphate, ceramide-1-phosphate-dependent suppression via the P38-MAP kinase. So there's another way to regulate INOS. And of course, we're talking about uh, gasotransmitters there, but that's all part of controlling the inflammation response, depending on which um, organ or tissue bed we're talking about. So ceramide participates in the control of all kinds of biological functions, senescence, differentiation. I had mentioned before neural arborization, and that, that's what ceramide can do, whereas free sphingosine modulate cell death, and then when you phosphorylate ceramide, making C1P, ceramide 1-phosphate, that stimulates cellular survival, and therefore it can counteract its non-phosphorylated uh, companion, ceramide. And so if it counteracts ceramide signaling, it would decrease then acid sphingomyelinase, and indeed the biosynthetic enzyme for ceramide, serine palmitoyl transferase. So I want you to understand the subtlety at potency of signaling. There's upstream events. There's the relative concentration of the metabolite that controls this uh, process. Um, for example, ceramide, ceramide 1-phosphate. Uh, and then there's a receptor, and the receptor comes in multiple forms. So 
Back to sphingosine. Sphingosine 1 phosphate regulates cell viability, neuronal excitability, and also arborization. So what this tells us is sphingolipids are engaged in immune phenomena, and they critically alter the fate of all kinds of cells, including those in the central nervous system, and therefore can be associated and are indeed associated, according to the published literature, in neurodegenerative diseases. So the roles of sphingosine 1-phosphate and ceramide in the survival of, for example, neurons in the central nervous system are far more complex than simple antagonism described for, say, a sphingolipid rheostat model. So in that rheostat model, imagine a balance or scale. And on the left, you have ceramide. And on the right, you have sphingosine 1-phosphate. So depending on the ratio, for example, Ceramide high, S1P low, that's associated with Alzheimer's disease. Ceramide high, S1 phosphate doesn't seem to play a role, Parkinson's disease. Aging, the process of aging or senescence, ceramide up and sphingomyel, uh, uh, excuse me, sphingosine 1 phosphate down, similar to Alzheimer's disease. You see the way you can do this, right? So, S1P and ceramide antagonistically signal cell survival or death, largely via shared mediators. Both of them, of course, can directly inhibit each other's biosynthesis. So sphingosine 1-phosphate is classically viewed as anti-apoptotic, as I mentioned. It's been shown to mediate the actions of numerous anti-apoptotic metabolites. So sphingosine 1-phosphate typically opposes right, the pro-apoptotic role of ceramide, presumably by decreasing oxidative stress and indeed by modulating expression of pro and anti-apototic proteins of the BCL2 family. Okay, altering the expression of the pro, lowering it, um, enhancing the expression of anti-proteins of, of the BCL family, in, increasing it. So if you're talking about a final disease state of axonal de degeneration or neuronal death, what are we talking about in terms of ceramide moiety, the ceratide pa ceramide pathway? First of all, remember that ceramide can be synthesized from um, the serine palmitoyl transferase, the novo pathway. It can be synthesized from ceramide synthase, right, from sphingosine. And it can also be synthesized directly from the DEGS, and that is, of course, uh, the, the desaturase enzyme, right? So... Besides that, all the novo pathway, sphingomyelinase will generate ceramide by breaking down membrane sphingomyelin, uh, such as in MS, and so can um, ceramide 1-phosphate phosphatase, an enzyme that removes the phosphate, therefore flipping the response, right? Now, once you turn on ceramide, there are yet two other bifurcations. One is you turn on the PP2A, that's the protein phosphatase 2A. Okay, now what that normally does, right, is that will block the AKT. And blocking the AKT means that the AKT cannot block BACs, BCL, BAD, GSK3 beta. Now on the other side of the coin, Ceramide induces reactive oxygen species because of its alteration of mitochondrial metabolism and peroxisomal metabolism. Likewise, uh, what, what reactive oxygen does, it has its own downstream affection. One is, is it inhibits 
sphingosine kinase. One, that's the enzyme that would take sphingosine and turn it into S1P, therefore, what? Diminishing the effect of ceramide. ROS also enhances the, the junk uh, kinase, right? The Jun kinase. It enhances the P38 enzyme, and it blocks the ERK kinase, right? Now, all of that, all of those three processes I just told you, further signal through P53 and AP1. So P53 is turned on, and so is AP1. Now, what that ultimately uh, facilitates, again, is the following. More reactive oxygen is synthesized. Cytochrome C is released. Caspases 2, 3, 5, 8, and 9 are turned on. The Becklin 1 pathway and the LC3 dash Roman numeral 2 is all turned on. What that leads to is, again, exonal degeneration and neuronal death. Okay? So you have to keep in mind that when you're, for example, in that pathway, you were inducing the activator protein at, um, at 1. So AP1 then can trigger that whole response on its own, or P53, the protein that's normally considered uh, associated with uh, cell cycle arrest, right, and, and described well in uh, oncology, that same protein will function to trigger axonal degeneration and neuronal death, depending on what's downstream from it. I just told you what's downstream from those things, right? All those processes then have multiple pathways that they function through. And this is the key feature here. For example, even working through the mitochondrial respiratory chain, the uh, proteins P53 and AP1 that have been turned on by the junk kinase or P38, right? Those two pathways that were turned on by reactive oxygen, which were triggered by ceramide, all of those are going to inhibit oxidative phosphorylation electron transport chain of mitochondria. As I said, that's what they're going to do. It's going to trigger higher levels of reactive oxygen, right? Because you're trying to oxidize NADH. If you cause a corruption of the electron transport chain, what's going to happen is you're going to get a buildup of reactive oxygen, right? It's what happens because you don't get the full reduction of molecular oxygen, O2, down to water. And those multiple one electron reduction steps leave in its sway a series of reactive oxygen species, some of which can be very, very potent. All right, so moving on. Sphingolipid signaling then controls transcription factors like AP1 and NF-kappa-B, which then controls cell death and inflammation. So AKT targets like FOXOA1, 3A4, and even isoform 6 are engaged in cell death regulation in human tissues. Remember how AKT was altered by ceramide versus sphingosine 1-phosphate. Prevailing role of elevated ceramide in cell degeneration and therefore death is mediated by multiple signals. So you get inhibition of the mitochondrial respiration, as I just said, increased production of ROS, of course, the release of a protein called A1F, which is an apoptosis factor, Cytochrome C is released in the mitochondrial membrane, and you also get a generation of a protein called SMAC. So the BCL2 binding protein, Becklin 1, also is turned on by ceramide. The autophagosomal LC3-2, which I mentioned, that binds to the mitochondrial ceramide to induce lethal mitophagy, right? While inhibition of enzymes like HDAC, which is a deacetylase, 
both HDACs 1 and 2, then is engaged in pro-survival signaling of sphingosine 1-phosphate, which could activate P38 and ERK and block junk, right? But if you're inhibiting the HDACs, you're not going to get that pathway turned on. So the ERK kinase <clears throat> appears to mediate a pro-survival action of uh, sphingosine 1-phosphate working through the sphingosine 1-phosphate receptors. Those receptors have also stimulate an antiabiotic, what? The phosphatidylinositol-1,3-kinase AKT pathway, whose disruption in Alzheimer's disease would further deploy a disease pathomechanism, right? So sphingosine 1-phosphate may also exert neurotoxic influence, depending on the spatiotemporal control of its production and degradation, of course. So this is all event-mediated ontologies. This isn't substance ontology. I keep on saying that. So when its concentrations reach too high of a level in a certain range of time, you get a loss of physiological ceramide concentrations because sphingosine 1-phosphate can be generated from ceramide, remember, because of the pathway. That will lead to structural disturbances in the mitochondria because of membrane alterations. And it can result in reduced respiration. So ceramides also regulate, of course, as I've been saying, membrane biophysics, biodynamics. So they, therefore, ceramides influence other aspects of organellar function besides the programmed cell death pathway. And so that then indirectly will affect life cycle, such as the life cycle or the turnover of mitochondria by controlling mitochondrial fusion and fission. Remember, mitochondria reproduced by fission. And indeed, my vesicular transport through the endoplasmic reticulum, Golgi through the plasma membrane pathway. Okay. And the paroxysome, of course, is also heavily involved. So the pathophysiological roles of all of these sphingolipids are dependent on their chain length, particularly ceramide. Uh, so ceramide synthase isoforms play a role. Ceramides lead to the dephosphorylation and inactivation of the really important canonical pathway enzyme AKT. And with the BAD and GSK, that's glycogen synthase kinase 3 beta activation. All those changes cause mitochondrial alterations and the acetochrome C release and the activity of caspases all then generate what in Alzheimer's disease, for example, axonal degeneration death. Now, they will do the same thing in other tissues, only it may not be axons that die, may not be neurons that die, it may be liver cells that die, it may be lung epithelia that die, okay? So... All of that is associated with this process. So depending on an etiologic agent, you're going to be using the same mechanisms of controlling sphingosine turnover and ceramide turnover. Okay, that's still a, a canonical pathway that can be triggered, for example, by a viral invasion, by a bacterial infection, by a traumatic brain injury, by an overindulgence uh, in alcohol by the use of amphetamines or the use of cannabis or the use of other narcotics or drugs. All of that can trigger these pathways and therefore can lead to different components of programmed cell death or autophagy, which for the short term may be beneficial to the system, which can, but, but which can also lead because of the degradation or reformation of membrane lipids and proteins, a complete alteration of the phenotype of the cell and that means different expression of different receptors on the surface. That was different signaling. All of that then is going to mediate a totally different response downstream. So remember, you get ceramide-induced apoptosis, and that involves this caspase-mediated and even the caspase-independent pathways. And so the cumulative balance between sphingosine 1-phosphate and ceramide 
one phosphate. I mean, and ceramide, excuse me, not ceramide one phosphate, ceramide alone, because you can remove the phosphate. It's going to influence apoptosis directly. It's going to change the regulation of autophagy. Remember, S1P regulates, tunes up autophagy. And that's because of the complex interplay of other downstream proteins. One of them was Becklin, I told you, and the other was BCL2. But what about mTOR? Indeed, mTOR is also regulated by AKT, which is regulated by the relative concentrations, the equal poise of sphingosine 1-phosphate and ceramide. So the ceramide 1-phosphate-dependent autophagy is probably a homeostatic rheostat. That's the kind of response it's giving you. It's pro-survival uh, for the short term. And it's involved in the clearance of intracellular debris. All good things when you get partial tissue damage, but you want to retain that tissue. Don't want to go through, for example, neural degeneration because that's going too far. So I want you to understand the potency of these sphingolipids. This is all happening. Yes, yeah, sure, there's some transcriptional regulation. Sure, there's some protein expression. Sure, there's some protein turnover uh, via, for example, proteosomal degradation. Sure, there's some mitochondrial turnover and even degradation. So organelles can break down, proteins can break down, lipid membranes can break down. And you can then have all the way to a massive breakdown, either an apoptotic pathway or a pyrototic pathway, depending on um, the other components that regulate that system, right? The other downstream enzymes and a signaling cascade pathway and ultimately maybe even transcription factors. But certainly bioenergetics plays a role. You need a lot of ATP to break down cells, indeed. It's not an ATP generating system because you shut down almost at the get-go the ability to synthesize ATP via oxidative phosphorylation, which means you have really limitation of ATP useful for other things like biosynthetic pathways that could generate proteins that could be self-preserving. That's why autophagy plays such a key role here, right? So keep all of that in mind as we move on, right? Keep all of that in mind. So... Next step of this, I'm going to try to like consolidate what I've just said. So remember that you can make ceramide from serine and palmitoyl CoA, and that's the de novo pathway. You can make ceramide from sphingomyelinase, either the acid or neutral enzyme. You can resynthesize sphingomyelin with sphingomyelin synthase by getting the phosphorylcholine from phosphatidylcholine. That means now you're getting another membrane shift from glycerolipid into sphingolipid, which is going to alter the entire membrane biology, right? It's going to it's going to change 15 things at once, but not in a random way, but in a very specific, ordered, indeed, architectonic way that's going to be related to upstream and downstream processing all the way to which receptors are going to be bound to, and that has to do with which receptors are expressed and where they're expressed, and that can go back to the lipid graft. So in other words, a lot of the things that are going on in the cell happen in a very, almost a cult way. They're not these massive changes in gene expression. They are these massive changes in cellular rearrangement as afforded by lipid modification of the membranes, both endomembranes, endosomal membranes, membranes of endosomes that get kicked out of the cell, carrying with them things like microRNAs, right? And also the entire membrane turnover, which is going to alter the bioenergetics of the system, changing peroxisomal activity, mitochondrial activity, the expression of genes in the nucleus, because you need a lot of ATP for that, of course, the turnover and synthesis of nucleotides, ribonucleotides, and deoxyribonucleotides, carbohydrate metabolism, and ultimately also beta oxidation. So anyways, all that's associated. So when you get ceramide, 
from those pathways. You can also get ceramide from removing phosphate from ceramide one phosphate. Ceramide is going to be canonically involved in apoptosis, cell cycle arrest, and cellular senescence. That is aging, right? Ceramide one phosphate is working in the opposite way. Cell survival, cell proliferation, inflammation, right? So where ceramide kills cells, ceramide one phosphate controls the inflammatory response, which isn't just killing cells, it's signaling. So don't think of inflammation just a bunch of dead cells all necrotic. Inflammation is a biologically active process. You need inflammation, for example, when you get infected with a pathogenic bacterium. So all of this, again, is clearly necessary to understand just with the ceramide pathway alone. Now, ceramide, of course, can be converted to sphingosine just by an enzyme called ceraminidase. Sphingosine can be reconverted to ceramide via ceramide synthase. So see, those are four different pathways to make ceramide. Once you make sphingosine, non-phosphorylated form of that sphingolipid, that also promotes apoptosis and cell cycle arrest, much like free ceramide does. You phosphorylate it with the kinase, Okay, sphingosine kinase, making sphingosine 1-phosphate. Um, that's going to what? Induce cell motility, cell survival, cell proliferation, and inflammation. Inflammation good. Cell proliferation can be good if you're trying to regenerate new tissues because you need new cells, right, like neurogenesis, right, or uh, hepatocellular biogenesis. You need to make new liver cells, for example, because of a damaged liver. Because of uh, chronic obesity or chronic alcoholism, for example, the whole NAFLD and NASH pathways I've talked about, right? The non-alcoholic steatosis, uh, hepatitis pathways, the cirrhosis, ultimately to hepatocellular carcinoma. Those pathways are going to also be regulated by these lipids, right? Now, one final fate of sphingosine 1-phosphate is the sphingosine 1-phosphate lyase. That'll take it all the way to ethanolamine 1-phosphate and palmitoaldehyde, and those two products will not be used to resynthesize any of the uh, lipid uh, pathway intermediates. So there is, of course, an ultimate degradation, right? It's not just these interconversions, which I'm focusing on. It's not just those. All right. So other thing to keep in mind, then, is that you have a salvage pathway and you have a de novo pathway. The de novo pathway can be turned on by interferon beta, which is involved in the inflammasome regulation, which is associated with the cogent regulatory system that allows for inflammation in a system, such as during a viral infection, a bacterial infection, a TBI, a stress response, excess alcohol consumption, all those things that you talk about, chronic obesity. Right? So interferon beta right, can trigger the de novo pathway, but it can also trigger the salvage pathway because it turns on those same enzymes, okay? It turns on those same enzymes. So ceramides are produced by all those pathways, and you have to understand that interferon beta therapy, which is sometimes used, for example, in MS, is going to control the sphingolipid pathway. But depending on the receptors, for all those possible intermediates and all the enzymes involved in degradation of biosynthesis and interconversion, using the blood instrument of interferon beta as a therapy, for example, for a disease like MS, may, may allow for remission of disease, but downstream may actually allow for relapse of the disease. 
once the receptors that are responding to the remission phase of the induction uh, afforded by the interferon beta are eliminated because of changes in membrane fluidity, right? So all of that, all of that will lead then to, all of that will lead then to a complete change in the, the response to a given drug. And this is why it's really important for the pharmaceutical community to understand these pathways. Now I'm going to leave you with one more consideration, and that's the beta-glucosidase pathway, which takes glycerol ceramides, glycer, for example, glucosyl ceramide, which can be synthesized via ceramide plus UDP glucose. You can take glucosyl ceramide and break it down to ceramide and glucose. There are multiple enzymes involved in that pathway. There is the ceramide-specific glucosyl transferase, and there's the, there's the glucocerebricide, uh, glucocerebricidase. Those enzymes in conjunction with the beta-glucosidase, which is called GBA, so you have GBA and you have GBA2, can break down glucocerebricides. Those are ones containing complex sugar moieties. There's finger livers with the complex uh, sugar moieties as it's found in the central nervous system and take it all the way down, okay? So in fact, the beta-glucosidase 2 is also known as the uh, bile acid beta-glucosidase actually generated from organs like the liver and the pancreas. So the GBA2, the beta-glucosidase gene is mutated in genetic neurological diseases. We know this. For example, hereditary spastic paraplegia and uh, another horrible path, a horrible disease called cerebellar ataxia. So I want you to keep in mind that there is another pathway embedded here, and that is the breakdown and interconversion of glucosyl ceramides, yet another major component of the Schwingelmyelin network, okay? So I'm gonna leave you that with that, with what we've talked about right now, because I, I, I wanna finish this off and I wanna get back to now, we're gonna get back to a summary and synopsis and get back to finishing off this whole discussion of how these lipid modifications are associated with the potential to look for molecular targets in viral disease. That's one of the reasons I took this, this uh, walk, right? It's not a random walk. It's a very specific walk, a molecular walk, a biochemical talk pathway, right? So that I could get you to understand what's happening subsidiarly with lipid membranes, because that's far more important in terms of understanding real-time changes in cells and therefore disease etiology. And I also was talking about autoinflammation. I want to see how this feedback into that because the mechanisms involved in all stress responses in the human system ultimately trigger back to very specific lipid-modifying pathways. Our nucleotide pathways, our carbohydrate pathways, our amino acid pathways also involved? Of course they are but the one that's often overlooked, which actually governs the other pathways because of the changes of the endomembranous system is lipid metabolism. I'm a lipid biochemist, and it's my mission in life to make sure that for all of you that are interested in biomedicine and for all of the lay people that want to know more about biology in general, I want to be the person that helps you learn about lipids and not the lipids you think are bad for you, because many of those things you hear are completely mythological, like trans fatty acids are not bad for you. They occur in every single lipid that is synthesized in the body de novo and via all the pathways I talked about. Um, but also there's a lot of other components of lipid metabolism that have erroneously been given a bad name. 
uh, because people think that everything is associated with the obesity is just associated with the adipose fat. And indeed, adipose fat can cause disease, but that's not the thing that you need to think about when you think about cellular metabolism of lipids. Anyways, this is Dr. Dan Guerra signing off from Authentic Biochemistry in the Pacific Northwest on the 4th of May, March 2020. Bye for now.